Hello and welcome to a new episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always is Toby. Hello Toby. Hey Simon. In this episode we will be looking at William F. Buckley Jr., perhaps the most famous and important conservative author and commentator of the last century. William Frank Buckley Jr., born in 1925, was the sixth of ten children born to William Frank Buckley Sr., a Texas-born lawyer and oil developer. Moving between America, Mexico, France and England as a child, William Buckley Jr. would go on to attend Yale where he studied political science, history and economics and excelled on the debate team. After graduating in 1950, Buckley worked at the CIA for two years where he worked for and became lifelong friends with E. Howard Hunt who was later jailed for his part in the Watergate scandal. Buckley would go on to publish more than 60 books throughout his lifetime but he is most famous for founding and editing the conservative magazine National Review, and for his television show Firing Line, as well as for his televised debates with Gore Vidal in the run-up to the 1968 presidential election. Buckley soon became the voice of American conservatism, especially once Ronald Reagan, a close friend and ally, was elected president in 1980. Reagan's praise and admiration of Buckley in the National Review cemented Buckley's place as the leading figure of modern conservatism. Buckley was known for his eloquent and pointed debating style, winning fans and infuriating enemies in equal measure. Buckley died in 2008, but remains a key figure to many on the right. As Lee Edwards, a historian for the Heritage Foundation, puts it, Buckley was the St. Paul of the conservative movement. We thought we'd start by kind of looking at, I suppose what, kind of made him famous to begin with and what established him as a, a leading figure on the right and that's the National Review. Uh, Toby, when when you think of Bill Buckley and you think of the National Review, what kind of comes to mind for you? What, what, what impact do you think he had on the right with National Review? Well, I mean, when I think of Bill Buckley and I think of National Review, first I think of I think of the moderation of the Eisenhower 50s period. I think of um, I think of the New Deal, and I think of the fact that the New Deal had been accepted by a lot of Republicans. Maybe because of a sort of pra- on the pragmatic level, because a lot of Republicans looked to um, the war period and seemed to um, think of it as a you know, a ceasefire in the ideological fight, and Eisenhower was quite ha- happy to continue the counter-cyclical demand-side policies of the FDR and Truman administration. But then Bill Buckley sort of almost seemed to come out of nowhere with, with the Molotov cocktail to <laughs> ruin this whole, you know, <laughs> spirit of uh, moderation that that seemed to take over after the war. Yeah, I mean. He... I suppose it's hard for us as sort of young men in a 21st century, which is so divided and which is so, there are so many different strands of attack as far as when you look at the right wing and Republicans these days, you know, whether it be kind of the religious far right or whether it be the kind of the strong economic style of, you know, heaven forbid the government should pay for anything or whether it be, um, you know, the far right of the NRA or anything like that. I suppose 
mm-hmm. the, the idea of there being a, a sort of starting point for at least some of that is almost an oddity, I guess. But Bill Buckley, to some degree, was that. He was, he was a, as some people I think, including his brother, tried to put it, a revolutionary. He wanted. Yeah, I think in um, 1957 he went on television and he basically said that verbatim. I am a revolutionary. I am a radical against the uh, present liberal order. I mean, this, this is what he said. You know? Absolutely. And I was just looking at the. I wasn't aware of this until I started researching the show. But um, there's a mission statement from 1955 from Bill Buckley for the National Review. Yeah. Okay. And they set out a few points about some of the reasons why why the National Review is around, and it, it lists things such as taking on a a government which is basically doing anything other than doing the bare minimum so it, it talks about uh, the growth of the government must be fought relentlessly in this great social conflict of the era we are without reservations on the libertarian side i mean that mm. kind of perfectly sums up national review to some degree and i suppose when we think of the national review certainly when i think of the national review it's tied in with Ronald Reagan and how he sort of, with his success in the 1980s, he legitimized it in a more mainstream way when he, yeah. he was able to talk about how it was, you know, a godsend to him and how it was a guiding light for him. Uh, yeah. I, I got and I, I think before we, 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 we get into Reagan, I think we do really have to set a sort of context for Republicans. Like, Absolutely. Like I've gone in. Uh, slightly touched on before with with Eisenhower, but you also have to think about because Buckley was a critic of of Eisenhower's economic policy and his foreign policy. He was a critic of Nixon's economic policy and his foreign policy. You know, absolutely. The the idea of uh, containing communism was um, sort of an idea that I think Kennan. Uh, had put forward and, and Eisenhower was going uh, along with. I mean, there was the um, re- sort of potential revolution in Hungary that had been snuffed out. Bill Buckley and people, and Bozell and people at the National Trust were disgusted that the, the administration would sort of leave the Hungarians, you know, <laughs> to be uh, sort of trampled on by the Soviet war machine. Absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, point point three here from the National Review Manifesto states that the century's most blatant force of satanic utopianism is communism. <laughs> you know, we consider coexistence with communi- communism neither desirable nor nor possible, nor honourable. It, it's exactly yeah. It, I mean, Bill Buckley, I think it was his second book, wrote about uh mccarthyism and what 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 a hero national hero mccarthy was by taking exactly on, taking uh, on uh, mccarthy and his enemies yes. and his enemies yeah uh, uh, he wrote that he wrote that with his um brother-in-law bozell who also actually shadow wrote the conscious of, of a conservative by by goldwater so you can see <laughs> immediately how crucial these people were to not only goldwater but Reagan as well. I mean, this this was the uh, the the insurgency at 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 that time. Well, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you've we obviously got the kind of the far right as far as well parts of it as it was established, and the kind of mainstream aspect as far 
as McCarthyism and that kind of stuff as far as uh, anti-communism is concerned. But there was a, a, a greater tone to how Bill Buckley was able to kind of move the conservative movement right. And as you say, um, Goldwater is is a key component of that. And Bill Buckley, of course, was a, a huge huge fan big friend of goldwater yeah i mean the thing about um goldwater is that i think within the national review family they were very much enamored with goldwater there was a sort of i think some feelings that maybe tactically goldwater's uh campaign might have been a bad idea certainly after 64 and before the, uh, Buckley ran uh, in 65 to push some more of those ideas in his campaign against John Lindsay in New York, he, di- he did feel that maybe they would have to do some damage control. So I think we do see in Goldwater's campaign, um, sort of in, in the infancy of the conservative movement, and certainly the fact that those ideas, the ideas that Reagan would push, you know, lowering uh, lowering the marginal marginal tax rate to 25%, deregulation and uh, the, the weakening of unions, things like um, increasing the uh, the United States uh, arms in comparison to the Soviet Union. These things were considered, I think, fairly like crazy ideas. And I mean, the the loss, the tremendous defeat of Goldwater shows you that how difficult a task it, it ends up being uh, <laughs> yeah. the, um, for Bill Buckley and National Trust to really overturn uh, the the order at the time. But I, I, I think the way we've, we've been talking about uh, it so far does, does seem to does it seem, sound like we are sort of um, deifying <laughs> Bill Buckley's <laughs> achievements. We, we're not. We're just saying that, you know... Um, that there had been some sort of consensus in in the 50s, and 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 the Goldwater uh, failure does show you the strength of that consensus th- th- at the time. It was it wasn't a period of major legislation, but it was a period where um, a lot of newspapers were dominated by the you know the Arthur Schlesingers and uh, John Kenley Galbraith of, of the of the time. And yeah. Absolutely. I, I think it's an import, important point you make there, regardless of whether or not you agree with Bill Buckley or if you're you know, a, a normal, rational human being and you don't agree with Bill Buckley. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I think it's, <laughs> it, it's important It's important to establish how important a figure he was and what he did, mm-hmm. not just for the American right, but for American political discourse in general and how America would look very different different today if it, if it weren't for Bill Buckley, if it weren't for the National Review, and if it weren't for the people who were driving that that train forward. You know, American politics would be very different, and it's perhaps unfair to say we wouldn't have Reagan, but maybe we wouldn't have had Reagan, or maybe we wouldn't have had Reagan to the same degree or with the same success. So it's... I, I also think, like, we have to think about how methodical this was. Mm-hmm. Because you think about it, like there was there was real, I mean, by by Buckley and, and others on on the right, real disgust for for um, the the liberal Republicans. But so that, like National Review is obviously a political outfit that would support 
a Republican, but they, they thought to themselves, are, are we going to support Eisenhower in, in 56? And they wrote columns and they didn't, de- they decided that they would just write a list of opinions and the, the, then the corporate uh, National Review didn't actually come out with a general opinion in 60 as well against uh, John F. Kennedy. They, they felt that it might be better to not endorse Nixon. And then they pushed the campaign of, of Goldwater in 64. And then in 68, they, after being courted by Nixon, they managed to support him. And then in 72, they, they pushed the dump Nixon movement. You know, this is a, this is a movement certainly with, with a long-term plan and one that didn't necessarily go for political expediency when it, it uh, revealed itself, potentially, you know? Absolutely. And I, I think it's a very, very good point that you. Oh, yeah. And then you have to go to 76, where they forced Reagan to run against an incumbent president <laughs> and almost beat him. It's, 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 uh, it's savage, really. The, yeah. The... It's, as you say, it was a very methodical approach National Review took. And I suppose it's, it's interesting to see, I suppose, the results fit to some degree with, you know, with Reagan and the stuff that came before it, but I think it's also interesting to note kind of how it came about and how sort of Bill Buckley himself came about and how, you know, he was, if, if ever a man was sort of bred for a situation, it, it, it kind of was Bill to a certain extent. Yeah, he was, yeah uh, Bill, Bill was, uh, I, I think it, Bill probably, he possessed part of the old conservative and then his own sort of new conservative brand that he put together at the National Trust because he did sort of have a sort of uh, a, a sort of transcendental uh, Catholic religion that he had been brought up with. He, he said himself that he was brought up in a Catholic home with with not even a small uh, hint of tentativeness among us. You know, <laughs> like everyone, everyone read, read from the same... Um, very long hymn sheet, yes. <laughs> essentially, yeah. And I think it was a very different upbringing from, say, FDR, who you would you would assume comes from the same patrician class. They they their their Catholic upbringing was very different from the Protestant upbringing that pushed the sort of social gospel that was big in you know in Connecticut and New York and, and all those older families the, the, like um I think Bill Buckley's brother said in the um in the the, do- the great documentary um best of enemies we we were savages we weren't part of the uh, <laughs> yes the, the Long Island society and and I, I think um they bought you know a set of principles that were of the old guard the old republican guard Certainly, and I, I think that that affected his perception of the New Deal in a way that that other people from his perceived class just you know they just didn't react to it in that way. You know, absolutely. And I, I do think, I mean, certainly for myself, I, I don't know about you, Toby, but whenever I hear the word libertarian, I, I can't help but laugh. Um, I don't know if that it's a completely fair reflection on libertarianism, <laughs> but that that's my, that's my first reaction. I I can yeah. I I have the reaction of the the way I picture libertarianism is the well what you can't tell me which side of the road to drive d- down on. I can drive whichever side I want. You know. Yeah, and it, it is funny. There is a Ron Paul, uh, Bill Buckley interview 
in like 19 uh around like after reagan just sort of humiliates mondale this is sort of <laughs> and, and, and and ron paul is almost like um oh, reagan you know he's i mean he's he's increased all this military spending and he's it, like he's he's criticizing reagan from the uh the you know the the right and and bill buckley's almost incredulous yes <laughs> because because i mean libertarianism you know, I mean, there were, they have, there certainly were people like the Mori Murray Rothbard, the Iron Rands, the Ron Paul, who, you know, who didn't, I mean, Buckley is a radical, but they didn't have a sort of, they just weren't logistically part of the conservative movement. So they didn't, I, I suppose they didn't have the same need to deal with the realities of politics that Buckley had to, to an yeah. extent. I think that that's fair. Um, Upon doing research on on Bill, I, I found out um, that uh, his his father was actually friends with a libertarian author called uh, Albert J. Nock. Yeah, J- uh, Albert J. Nock. Yeah, yeah. and um, Bill Bill Buckley Jr. was kind of in- encouraged to to read Nock's work, and you 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 can definitely see. I mean, who knows? Perhaps regardless of whether or not his father had pushed him into that area, maybe he would have, you know, had that strong libertarian spirit spirit regardless, but when you start to kind of get little snapshots of of how he kind of grew up in the background he was in it it's, it it fits together very nicely with the man he went on to become i think yeah i mean he got his christianity from his family but i think albert j nock wasn't christian what he got from nock was obviously that libertarian those libertarian sort of axioms those those values like irrespective of the you know the evidence but he also got the sort of aristocratic sense that that material things weren't important. You know that this is why I think um, he sort of scorned the the liberal materialist way of of seeing things. And and I think Albert J. Knox's work did um, sort of radicalize Buckley in a way. Yeah. But obviously not to the extent that um, I think. You know, people like Ayn Rand and you know the the Birches were, or, or T- Toby Aloe. I believe he's he's the most. Oh yeah, or, yeah. or, or myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I you know I I I you know I mean personally I don't want to go, but I think the work of Kierkegaard uh, also gives me that sort of a, um, <laughs> a non-materialist. Uh, uh, you know, way capitalist, of dealing yes. with things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, before we kind of move on, I, I think we can cut almost. I don't know if we we can kind of close the loop on national review, but I think it it's it's very telling that when Reagan talked about um national review, he said I this was him writing in. Uh, 1960, next, 1962 I'd be lost without National Review and mm-hmm. I, I think that is quite a, a strong image of... Yeah, Re- Reagan sort of had his own personal pilgrimage from away from being a sort of Democrat, a Democrat who was very anti-communist to reading Whitaker Chambers' book I think Witness it's called and then reading National Review sort of like every morning and then I think he said about Bill Buckley while he was president that you know it, it was a he remembers the time 
primeval, the, the a world of nightmares. And then Bill Buckley came with his uh his, his pen and his clipboard, and things haven't been the same again. It's it's <laughs> I mean he he draws almost sort of these um almost like medieval yeah pictures of of, of Buckley sort of casting away the dark age and 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 all it was was a you know uh (laughs) i guess the top marginal tax was 90 (laughs) percent and uh you know maybe you had to work uh and and maybe uh workers had bargaining rights um jointly i mean it wasn't i mean with america (laughs) it wasn't some sort of dystopia but i mean it it is funny the dreams that certain american politicians on the right have i remember paul ryan talking about when they were putting through one of those um reform bills the other other language last year and he talked about how he'd, he'd envisioned this since he was a young man at college about that that's the kind of dreams they have about making rich people richer i mean it, it's, yeah you know it, it's... i i think paul ryan definitely was a you know he he might have been a, a young devotee of um you know just i mean i'm not saying he 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 was sort of uh um he just grew up on bill buckley's knee i'm just saying he, <laughs> he read a lot of national trust but he i think ryan is a excellent segue into um, you know, Buckley and some other right-wing um, figures that maybe didn't have uh, the same impact on the the conservative movement, but necessarily t- still to the day, you know, you can see their their um, sort of their, their their power in the conservative movement. Absolutely, and you know, Paul Ryan is a he is nothing but a lover of Iron Rand, I believe. Uh, oh yes, yeah. We, I think we'll get on to so that. Did, um, didn't he, he? Apparently, he gives his uh, all of his young staffers Atlas Shrug to read. I mean, why wouldn't you? As a as a good Christian, should I believe? <laughs> it's, uh, it's the moral decision right there. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's 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 really interesting um, because I think the first time Buckley met Rand. She's, you know, that they were both obviously uh, strict anti-communists. They both despised Eisenhower, but uh, she must have, must have said something like, "You are much too smart to believe in God," <laughs> and, and you know he he kept on sending her liturgical sermons for uh, <laughs> the, the the next, uh, you know, until she died afterwards. So you know, well, I mean, for Buckley, clearly there was li- lines of uh, conflict had been sort of erected. Absolutely. I mean, for Buckley, religion wasn't just a sort of tool to win over, you know, Hicks from the South. He he, he had a belief that Christianity was the core of what made America and what made the Republican Party. And... Exactly. And, and, and other figures in the National Trust had that belief, too. I think Buckley himself, especially in on liberalism, he and when talking about democracy and even votes for african-americans he, he sort of marginalizes democracy he, he he buckley and this is strange but buckley felt that democracy hadn't been you know he, he thought it was it was strange that the wars had been fought for democracy he felt that the, the freedoms that americans had inherited flowed from free uh, free enterprise and christianity and well i mean <laughs> iron man's beliefs were anathema to him 
Well, I mean, absolutely. Um, I think we'll probably get a little bit more into Rand a little bit later on, but one of the things that kind of started the conversations between Toby and I with regards to the uh, the great, uh, in quotation marks, if you like, Bill Buckley, is... <laughs> you know, Buckley um, loves to use irony, and um, he, he, he puts almost any anyone who... Who who is supposed to be like you know like he will write uh, these uh, economists in after in in, in <laughs> apostrophe just to just ironically deride them they're they're not economists and verbatim they're not economists they're just political theorists. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the the thing that kind of drew Toby and I together on this was a film called Best of Enemies, which ah Best of Enemies, yeah, w- which is available on Netflix certainly in the UK, and I, I believe it's fairly readily available. Um, and it's a documentary about um Bill Buckley and Gore Vidal, and in uh nineteen sixty eight, uh they had a, a series of debates on television, um where Bill Buckley and Gore Vidal went hand to hand, toe to toe, face to face, um, against each other to uh, discuss not just the specific politics of that day and you know the leading candidates, but more about a philosophy of of America, I suppose, Toby. Yeah, just before that, I would like to sort of say that Bill Buckley's rhetorical style—it's—it's it, very different from. Um, I don't know. I, if, I mean. If you read, uh, or have you ever listened to, say, Five Thirty Eight or the Vox yeah. podcasts, you know, mm-hmm. or NPR? There's a sort of voice that they have, and it's sort of mellow and it's monotonous, and it's it, you know, it, it's it's the it's the it's the go-to voice of debate or a go-to voice of you know enlightenment. Buckley's register was completely different. I think. I think in in on liberalism he 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 just spoke with disgust about the moderation that um that the liberals had shown and and instead of that what he tried to do is he tried to make his debates sort of you know amphitheaters of high melodrama he obviously Buckley was very empirical and he was very direct he was very evidence based but he would also use the them as ways to deride people in power through use of irony and sarcasm and he unloaded that on Gore Vidal who unfortunately seems to come from the same uh, (laughs) I mean being a sort of literary giant himself he seems to come from the same cloth almost it is interesting it was kind of two two sides of the same coin kind of thing they were yeah they, they in theory were kind of off the same sort of background off the same blood and I, I suppose to a kind of an untrained American ear they almost kind of sound the same in the such as they don't sound like the average American um, oh no there, there's a there's a guy in the documentary who says that if two guys sounded like this today they, they would almost sound to be heartless you yeah. know in a country of you know almost a widespread middle class self identity. Um, you mean that is not those <laughs> accents aren't democratized language. No. It's sort of it's 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 you know it's there to to 
distinguished people. <laughs> it, it, it almost reminds me a little bit of how on today on like the BBC you have a lot of you know more regional accents and you have a yeah, lot, yeah. lot of sort of yeah well, the, 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 well the BBC, spoken, BBC have certainly people. tried yeah whereas the BBC in the past you had these sort of fantastically linguistic type people who would come on with some sort of accents that you almost couldn't imagine being around anymore and that, mm. that's almost the sort of similar thing to Vidal and Buckley where yeah I think like if you watch Cheers you know Frasier <laughs> yes <laughs> think Frasier <laughs> well I mean I can now only imagine Frasier and Gore Vidal and Bill Buckley together and that's all I can think of so um oh. <laughs> <laughs> so just just to set the scene a little bit Leading up to the 1968 election, you had sort of three main uh, TV stations in America, networks in America. You had CBS with the great Walter Cronkite. You had NBC with Hunter and Brinkley. And then in third place, you had ABC. And ABC didn't have the budget or the means to compete with those two. So they had to be a bit more creative. They didn't have the, the time to time or the budget to spend on the on the political side of things as far as covering conventions the way that the other two networks did. So they got a bit creative and they got a debate going. And the debate was obviously Bill Buckley on the right and Gore Vidal on the left. The film Best of Enemies is fascinating viewing. You know, It's really, really interesting viewing to watch regardless of what side of the political spectrum you fall down on. I think... I think as a introduction to Bill Buckley and Gore Vidal, I think it's it's a really great place to start, and I know we both thoroughly enjoyed the film. Wow, yeah, uh, tremendously because I I think, I I think in two thousand in two thousand and eighteen there is a lot of work being done on the sort of spirit of sixty eight, the sort of I think shattering of a of the old political consensus that had come um after the wars and i think this movie certainly for the american political consensus it is it, it, i mean is a clear indicator of you know how i think ferocious these sort of cultural um um sort of these cultural battles were becoming in in, in american life and I think that the the, the convention in, in 1968 just by itself, you know, is, is something that, that is, is, is interesting. And then being um, projected by these two men, both, you know, both from the same class, but also both having such diametrically opposed points of view is, is I mean, it, I mean, it's a fantastic documentary. Absolutely. I, d- I do wonder whether or not without that 1968 debate whether or not we would have bill buckley to the same degree it's probably we we still would have simply because we'd still had national review going all that time and his own television show firing line was happening around 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 that time as well so it's it's not like this was the making of bill buckley but certainly from the documentary it gave the impression that this was another foot in the door for Bill Buckley with kind of the standard American viewer. And, and stylistically, you can see, I think um, he does, you know, shows with Woody Allen. I mean, obviously, Buckley in some ways is a very antiquated figure, but, you know, he he's appreciated by liberals, 
because he can build from their premises, but he's also appreciated by liberals because he's good on television, you know? Well, I mean, quite. I mean, there's there's a clip on in uh, Best of Enemies where <laughs> Mr. Uh, Mr. Woody and uh, Bill Buckley are, are discussing, well, they're having a conversation, and a, a young woman from the crowd asks a question. I think it's to do with miniskirts. And uh, Bill Buckley responds, I think it's something to do with are miniskirts too short or are they inappropriate and bill buckley kind of gives a sly look and he says not on you my dear yeah and you know it's it's really hard to watch that in 2018 you know because if you did anything like that these days you know unless you're running for president your career would be over but, <laughs> unless uh, you're running for president it, <laughs> but, <laughs> <it's>... <laughs> that's the only office that uh <laughs> Why well, one can be uh, so immodest? Yeah, with, with the highest office in the land became sort of the highest point of skirt in the land. It was, um... uh, you know, it's it's high high irony. I, I think Buckley would have enjoyed it. <laughs> but, but being able to look at Woody Allen and Bill Buckley kind of converse like that, it is it does give you an indication that Bill Buckley wasn't this strange figure on the right who had no dealings with anybody else. You know, he did become a mainstream figure. You know, he he wasn't some sort of figure you know stuck on some sort of pre-fox news channel you know he was right in the middle of the culture that was going around exactly i mean he was a heated polemicist definitely in the pages of national trust but on television he 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 should just use you know his wit i mean someone once asked buckley uh why is it you lean down you will lean back during your interviews and he says because I, I can't handle the weight of what I know you know it's, <laughs> and it sparkles yeah it's... absolutely it's Bill Buckley could turn a phrase certainly better than I ever could and better than I, I think it's a, it's, it's always most. important for political movements I mean uh, you know whatever candidate whatever candidates kind uh, candidates views are they, they have to have something about them that people can invest themselves in there's know? always a human level to politics yeah there, there, yeah know? exactly there's you have to become enamored with 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 someone for some other reason beyond the politics and, and certainly bill buckley had that that cachet Absolutely. you know you compare him in the complete opposite direction to someone like ed Miliband in the uk where, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's regardless of what he might believe and what he might do it's in the package of ed Miliband, so it's never going to be able to be sold to the public yeah, I, I do want to sort of go into an, another interview that Buckley did with uh, Kenneth Galbraith, because I think it further underlines the points of uh, Bill Buckley's style. Um, I think during the early Reagan administration, um, Reagan had looked to uh, sort of bring the top tax rate down from 70% to 25%, and Buckley brought on Kenneth Galbraith, who had written The Affluent Society. This was the sort of, you know, enfant arrive of uh, liberal economics at the time. And But these two were friends. So, you know, Buckley opens up with a salvo and says, you know, you know Kenneth went, he, he went to Buck, uh, Berkeley where he, um, he went to Buckley where he honed his superstitions. He went to Harvard where he corrupted the youth, you know, the, he 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 always he always uses ironies just to bring people uh, down down to size, and even when they're discussing um, the 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 tax rate, uh, 
Galbraith is sort of equal to 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 Buckley. He says, um, you know, when they're discussing uh, the the Reagan thrust, uh, Galbraith says, uh, you uh, Buckley, I, I I want to bring the I want to consider the Buckley and Reagan thrust that has gone back since the 18th century. He almost seems to present Buckley and Reagan thrust as a sort of like antiquated, like dark age economics um, framed against his own sort of more enlightened uh, Keynesianism. And then Buckley uh, sort of responds, are are you done with the New Deal? Um, uh, I uh, I don't want to rub it in. You know, there's a, I think, especially when, Buckley is talking to a friend as opposed to talking to someone, you know, like Vidal, who, you know, is sort of antimatter. There, <laughs> there is a, there is a sense in which that, um, you know, this this sort of almost like tongue-in-cheek irony comes to the fore, even when they're discussing something as you know as as woolly-headed as uh, you know the Phillips curve and the. The difference between uh, the marginal tax rate, you know, this is this is exactly the kind of way Buckley presents. But the Galbraith also makes another point. You know, Buckley is talking about, um, you know, Reagan Reaganomics, and they're discussing Reaganomics. But Buckley soon he switches to um, extremes. Like he will his form of um, sort of polemical style seemed to not only. Um, reach out for evidence-based debate, but you know when um, someone would say something is like uh, what we should increase the the tax rate, he would almost frame it as the person was you know we're moving to pseudo communism. You know, at, at any time, um, you know Buckley wasn't just sort of like the wonks on you know Vox. He wasn't simply just debating you on. The merits he would he would always use you know almost highs and lows it's sort of a baroque style debate that that I think can grate on people and I think can present itself almost as fictitious even though it's it's evidence based. Absolutely, and um, you know, with Bill Buckley in, in Best of Enemies, he was asked about you know who would he absolutely not debate and said i won't i won't debate a communist and i won't debate gore vidal yeah yeah course. i wouldn't say a communist and, and, and yeah and that that's uh that's also a very important point i think um Buck, buckley's anti-communism i mean he, he he would debate liberals and he would try he would present them as types even though he would debate them on the merits i i think he had a sort of almost like he he did he did feel that communism was was an a- analogous to to fascism, and um, this is oh, this is why he supported McCarthy, despite the fact that McCarthy's whole style was almost antithetical to Bill's empirical but colourful style. <laughs> it is an interesting match you have there. You know, it, it's it's the the styles and almost the beliefs to to some extent of McCarthy and. Buckley are, are so different yet their core of fighting communism unites them in, in a way which is almost some sort of you know it's a couple who maybe don't agree or disagree on everything but there's maybe one or two things which unites them and keeps them together and with with Buckley and McCarthy McCarthy you got that with strong anti-communism which again you know t- to our 21st century here's that's kind of comical you know I mean I you bring up, you know, being anti-communist and you sort of, 
you think of you know 80s propaganda films or something you know like Red yeah Dead, yeah so it's sort of like almost like delirious red scares yes the, red and and the, the thing about mccarthy is that he produced you know it was in the wake of the alger hiss thing you know nixon had been sort of almost like his his, his meteoric rise to vice president and uh just senator first and then vice president had been sponsored by the fact that he had um brought alger hiss out alger hiss was a sort of you know uh almost like dauphin of the liberal um uh sort of the liberal cultural eastern establishment and um by proving that alger hiss had been a spy nixon was uh, sort of built up as this uh, new uh, republican hero but so and mccarthy wanted to do the same thing that nixon did in, in one of one press conference he brought out a, a list of 25 names he didn't reveal the names 25 names of uh potential communists in the government that, that apparently people knew uh, Dean Etchison knew that these people were communists, never revealed their names. And then he just left and then he started changing the accusations. And, and, and his, uh, people at the time and historians have complete, have said that, that all his stuff was completely fictitious. But Buckley seemed to back him because of a, almost a spiritual uh, consistency between them. It's almost unbelievable, you know, in this day and age that wild accusations would be made against people in government. I can't think of any movement in the last few years that, have, that has happened there. I mean, talk about a time in the past. Yeah, and I think that sort of, you know, that idea of, uh, you know, uh, a conservative pushing non-facts for, you know, sheer emotion is not... You know, is it, is, maybe it's not new. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and again, you know, that's another point. This this would be probably the only time that the right wing have ever gone to, you know, having to create their own kind of facts to back up their kind of beliefs. So that in itself is an interesting <laughs> bubble. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's such an interesting vacuum in, in history. I mean, it's, it's... <laughs> they should really try that again sometime. I think it might work. Yeah. Um. So before we kind of leave, Vidal, I mean, it's probably worth noting that in one of the later debates, um, Vidal really gets under Buckley's skin and calls him a crypto-Nazi, and that that really sets off Bill, and he calls... Don't call me a crypto-Nazi. <laughs> yeah, and he refers to him as a queer, and that he wants to punch him in the face, and all this sort of stuff, and you can see that Buckley completely loses his cool and in that moment certainly the film presents it as Vidal won quote-unquote you know he, he won that debate he won the kind of the the meeting of, of to great intelligence by reducing Buckley to you know homophobic slurs and empty threats you know it, it's mm. whether or not that is the case I'm sure people I'm sure people who thought Buckley was right on the issues would have continued to think Buckley was right on the issues regardless. I also think it's interesting we're, we're at a specific age where people on the right very much would support someone if they said something along those lines and would say... I mean, one of the defences that Trump comes up with and his people come up with is that 
Trump is saying it as it is and he's not hiding behind, you know, being politically correct anymore and all this kind of stuff and, you know, yeah. everyone gives him a cheer. I suppose for Bill that it's different because he did have a moral centre of sorts and he wasn't happy about the way things had, things had happened and, you know, it, it probably felt as much a defeat to him personally as it did to anyone else on the outside by the looks of it. Yeah, I think the Bill in the documentary it mentioned that Bill felt that he had won a lot of personal victories, but politically, I mean, up to that point, in the in the grand scheme of things, he had he he'd failed. But I think that was a you know personal defeat to to Bill, and it was a sort of it was it, it was you know he he was hysterical in that moment. You know he, his style is 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 cut and thrust in sort of you know, high volleys of, of melodrama, but that was completely devoid of his usual empiricism. So, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a very bad moment for him. Absolutely. Um, we're going to go on to a section with just some questions about Bill Buckley, but first there are kind of a couple of names I'm just going to throw at you, Toby, and I'm sure your your face will light up with glee. It's a shame we don't have a camera on you at the moment, but uh, Birches and Rand, does that sort of spring, ah, spring anything? And Rand. In, does that spring anything into mind for you? You know, I think if we were to go a little bit more, you know, uh, cultish, we, we could do a whole podcast <laughs> on, you know, both of these groups. Absolutely. And I, I think that, that, as you say, it's a, probably a separate podcast within itself to be able to delve yeah, into Two into separate groups. podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on, on Rand's side, you know, you have this... I don't know how you would describe Aaron Rand apart from, I mean, she was she was such a, a full-bodied, full-figured person and belief system all, all within itself. I mean, she had people of great high power coming to her for wisdom and kind of coming to her altar. You know, it, it's... Yeah. She was... She wasn't a minor figure. You know, she, she, was, she was the big deal, you know, and... I mean, in, in, in 54, after the Fountainhead had sold millions and millions of copies, I mean, she dwarfed... Bill Buckley and Absolutely, yeah. Point. It it is interesting that Bill Buckley and Iron Rand did have this, you know, coming together, this disagreement, you know, obviously Bill Buckley very religious and <laughs> Iron Rand very not religious. Um you had you know, you did have that core belief in both hating communists, but they were so opposed on that religious basis that it does make you wonder maybe if when we were talking earlier we, we, we talked about you know, McCarthy and Buckley maybe not being similar in every every way but they were united by their hate of communism. Mm-hmm. Rand and Buckley did have that shared hate of communism and yet they were so diametrically opposed on so many other things that that kind of removed any relationship they could have had. Yeah, like we said, it, it all flowed from Buckley's uh sort of Christianity, I think the Evans review and the National Trust of... I mean, he did. He quite liked Fountainhead, but um, when they read Atlas Shrug, it was just, you know, <laughs> just, they were all stunned by... I think Whitaker Chambers said that he had never read anything so devoid of goodness, you know? He, he, he proposed that, that he was looking for the sentence where someone would be told go to the gas chamber go it was it was i mean the national trust really 
really um, put down this uh, this book. And obviously, the book sold you know millions and millions of copies. But Rand, you know, conservatives around the National Trust and conservatives in administrations, you know, they they no longer talked about coming to the conservative movement through Atlas Shrugged. Um, the Weathercock Chambers and the Evans Review, which goes on about you know Christianity as the sort of fountainhead of you know ironically of um, the, um, free market ideas and all the freedoms that Americans had come to know. So I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah, certainly. But then you also think that Buckley realized himself, you know, in the seventies and eighties that. Although logistically she had been shut out, um, Rand had gone into the blood of conservatism in a, in a way that he looked at with uh, some some horror. Absolutely, and it is interesting, certainly from our kind of outside scope of it, that you know you can almost see the are you an Atlas Shrug Republican or you're a National Review Republican? Um, yeah, at at CPAC we should uh, run that vote <laughs> next time we're there. <laughs> okay, so that's Rand dealt with. If anyone's not familiar, I'm a Goldwater girl, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that seems fair. Uh, so that's that's Rand. Birches was not a name I was hugely familiar with. I think I'd maybe heard it in passing, just through things. I'd yeah, read, but the, the John Birch Society are famous for the idea that Eisenhower was a communist. Which I mean, it's so jarring. It, it I mean. They believe that 50 to 80% of the American government was dominated by communists. And um, John uh, Welch uh, put together his manuscript, you know, his, his book of uh, crazy. <laughs> and uh, he sent it out to his collective, the people, you know, the, the true believers. And because Welch had actually been an early investor in National Trust, he sent it out to Bill Buckley, Bill Buckley, who was also an arch anti uh, anti communist and who thought the New Deal was, you know, the the, the nightmarish uh, prime evil, <laughs> and and Buckley read this book, you know, with the, the, like, and it was fantastical. This is, he thought it was madness, but he framed it in a way that would be polite to Welch and just said said that he he disagreed with him on on some of the uh, essentials, and obviously Buck, uh, Welch immediately told him to. Send him back uh, the manuscripts. <laughs> I, I believe Buckley sort of steered away from that group and denounced them. Yeah, I mean, in, this, in, this, in the early 60s, certainly, um, there were many people who were Birches. Some some people in the National Trust were, were Birches. Uh, Goldwater's famous comment uh, about, um, you know, uh, in, being an extremist for uh, liberty is, is no vice. It, it Sort of was drawn out of the well of, of sort of Bircher uh, fanaticism. I think Norman Ma- Norman Mailer was at the 1964 convention and he, he heard that and he just thought, oh, well, thank you. I mean, I'm a writer, but I don't need. Uh, you know, thank you for all the help, you know. But um, yeah, um, the thing about the Birches, though, I think towards the end of the 60s, uh, National Trust. Because National Trust was so rooted in, you know, empiricism in terms of the, the facts they brought to bear on their own interpretation, 
they um, eventually started to attack the Birches and, and members of the Birches and to uh, exercise the um, conservative movement of the, this uh, sort of conspiracy theory club. Which, I mean, it, it's really only kind of keeping going together these days because you and I are running it, but... Um... Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the thing about John Welch and I, Ayn Rand, you know, I mean, that Buckley thrust of conservatism um, it, it is not the only form of conservatism that is around if, if we look... We're looking clear-eyed at the 2018 scene. I mean, there are many John Birches and Iran's around. Absolutely. Um, So before we end the podcast, we thought we'd just spend a couple minutes on two or three questions just to kind of round it out. The first question is probably maybe a question you might have at home if you're listening to this is, why are we doing a, a podcast on Buckley, what makes him interesting to us. And f- for me, the, the reason, I think part of the reason is because it's an interesting mix of, you know, political and, and media and that side of stuff. Because, you know, we are very much interested in how kind of politics and media ties together. I think part of it also comes from the fact that we like talking about Republicans and GOP and this kind of stuff and these big figures. And certainly speaking for myself, maybe because being someone who is more liberal, it's easier to dissect in a more neutral way, perhaps, being able to find the faults with, you know, a Republican or someone I don't agree with, maybe on a lot of issues. Maybe, maybe it's somewhat telling that our first two podcasts are about figures on the right, and perhaps it's it's telling about how how we want to dissect that as it is about the figures themselves i don't i don't know about you toby what why you think you and you and i are drawn to figures like bill buckley i think buckley is interesting because i think you know if you go back to the vox and the 538 way of presenting it and the obama way of uh, politics it's very uh, there's a lot of compromise there's a lot of um there's a lot of wonka tree uh, you know economics professors and, and people of that and and Buckley, the thing about Buckley, Buckley had a an intellectual um, group behind him. You know, people of the Mont Pelerin Society, uh, economists like Friedman and Hayek, who were putting forward you know ideas and winning. I mean, let's be honest, winning Nobel prizes. So Buckley was dipping into Wonka Tree himself, but he was also presenting it in, in a way. Then I think energize the political base in the way I, I I don't think they have. Just looking at it from a you know a neutral non-political perspective, it it seems like Buckley was able to. I think um, the son of Irvin Crystal said that you know reading National Trust when he was young was you know all of these sort of um, all of these complicated words, learning all of these complicated words, learning all of these arguments, learning. Uh, Buckley's style it was becoming a conservative and I think someone who has that power to both uh, join you know um, empiricism to uh, I think sort of colorful energy it's it's quite interesting Um, both and in a sort of a counterpoint to some of the politics we've seen and 
to uh, sort of counterpoint to some of the other politics we've seen, <laughs> we've seen from, uh, you know, uh, uh, and those who would not be named. I, mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I suppose to also see some sort of, you know, grandfather type figure. off. Of yeah, that's movement. certainly with, with people like Ann Coulter. I think she wrote <laughs> a, an article about being the informed to read all the, the young uh, Buckley. Um, you know, she perceived... She, I mean, she writes it in a much more Philistine style than, than Buckley does. But it's, yeah, you know, there, there is a lot of conservatives, even pre-Trump, who uh, took on Buckley's uh, sort of colorful, uh, ironic style. I don't think to, to the same success. They haven't been as funny. And I don't think they're, they are, they cling to the same need to be as evidence-based, obviously. And it just seems to get worse and, and worse. <laughs> absolutely i think the fact that his his style as much of his as much as his content i think is probably what draws us in i think yeah his style definitely uh, uh, um you know galbraith wants uh buckley you know you know sometimes i admit error do, do you ever um admit errors and, and buckley says yes which is why i'm so silent you know? <laughs> <laughs> that must be why you and i talk so much toby oh uh, well yeah I mean. <laughs> I'm just a rich uh, reservoir of. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so um, one, I suppose one obvious question when you know it's sort of been brought up already, but it's very difficult to look through any kind of any part of Republican history now and not frame it through at least partly through the the, the lens of Trump. Buckley himself had issues with Trump, you know. Yeah, as he he says, uh, what 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 was it that he said about Trump? He said, uh, "This this is from 2000. This is what uh, Bill Buckley wrote. Look for the narcissist. The most obvious target in today's lineup is, of course, Donald Trump. When he looks at a, when he looks at a glass, he is me- mesmerized by its reflection. If Donald Trump were shaped a little differently, he would compete for Miss America." Which <laughs> is, you know, I mean, I would say that's kind of harsh on Miss America, to be perfectly honest. But it, oh, it's, well, yeah. it's cer- certainly, it certainly kind of, you know, it, it sums up the negativity. And uh, Trump is in the business of smart. I, I think he just associates all of that. But Buckley just associates all of that together. It's just, you know. I, I, absolutely. I, I think Bill, because obviously, you know, 2000, you know, Trump wasn't president or anything back then. I think... It was much easier for him to be able to pick apart someone like Trump and see him. Yeah, as... I think Trump was trying to run um, on the reform uh, party line in in the two, in the early two thousands. He was try- he was looking potentially to run, and Buckley mm-hmm. had to you know cut cut and thrust. Absolutely. If yeah. only we, if only we had uh, you know him and his uh, gamillion sword. Uh, <laughs> <in the> <laughs> <laughs> and you know people at National Trust did write their own. You know opinions on Trump, and they repudiated him um, across the boards. But um, I think uh, there's an important thing. I think when we we try to compare Buckley to Trump, I think obviously we've said that Buckley's style was, you know, was it was obviously high melodrama in many ways that that Trump is. But but Buckley was based on empiricism. I also wanted to go. I want actually want to bring on. Uh, you know, M- M- Michel Foucault. I-, I think I might singe some middle brows uh, being on <laughs> weird French intellectual, but 
Foucault talked about sort of different institutions of truth. You know, the, we think about truth as just the you know, facts, but there are different sciences and institutions of truth. Um, economics is an institution of truth. And the thing about it is that Buckley was attacking, you know, sort of um, institutions that were respected by people like, you know, the, all of these newspapers he considered the, to be liberal in the television stations. And he, in, um, um, in God and Man and Yale, he attacked whole departments. But Buckley also pulled into other intellectual currents. You know, he, he was very much friends with Friedman and Hayek and all, all those other people. So he, 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 he had his own institutions of truth. And the thing about Trump is that he seems to have uh, re refuted all of the institutions that that are supposed to guard ideas of uh, truth and facts in in so almost like modern society. It's it's all emotion. Absolutely, I, I think it's interesting when you can you can kind of you can to some extent draw a line from you know Trump to Reagan to Bill Buckley, you know, etc. Yeah. We, we we did talk about how Buckley did move things f further to the right and you know you have Goldwater and that side of stuff so you know there is definitely a comparison there to be made but there's also a, a great a great divide between Bill Buckley and Donald Trump as far as specific people are concerned even if yeah. the movements that kind of birthed Donald Trump as tr president now could be sort of seen as partly created at least by by Buckley and National Review? Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, certainly Buckley, you know, uh, he pushed a lot of uh, the stuff that McCarthy was was doing, which he he knew was anti-thought, but he had a spiritual likeness to McCarthy. Although in McCarthy and his uh, enemies, Buckley did have a sort of judicious, you know, um, sort of studied um, look at, uh, McCarthy's accusations and did say that some of them were were bullshit in in the book, but yeah, there there is that that there is certainly that that tinge to Buckley, but I think the overarching uh, Bill Buckley on on sort of the issues of facts um, and interpretation is 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 clearly very different from from Trump. For me, I think the most interesting aspect of of Trump and Bill Buckley is although you know the USSR Russia of of Buckley's age of you know the 70s and 80s you know it is different yeah. to to you know USSR and Russia as it is today there is obviously i'm sure bill buckley would have had issue with this idea of the meetings that took place with trump and the russians and with the no doubt you know i mean it's there, there appears to be evidence there of some sort of, you know, influencing of of results in election that kind of stuff. You know, we did talk about Buckley's not exactly, you know, Mister Democracy, but I'm sure even he. Oh yeah, he certainly isn't Mister Democracy. He, I mean, he supported all of the coups, yes, all of the all yes. of the fascist dictators absolutely. that America put in place. Absolutely. All of them. And certainly isn't Mister Democracy at all. No. Absolutely, but I do wonder if he would have drawn the line whether it be you know hypocritical or not if if trump and russia was in itself a coup against united states democracy whether it be on a purely nationalist kind of level of 
not you know not on our soil kind of thing. I do wonder how Buckley would have seen Trump and Russia. And... Yeah, I, I I think it it's I mean it's hard on one level, but then you also have to see think about the people who have been influenced by by Bill Buckley and the National Trust. People like David Frum and David Brooks. You know the people who have sort of center right views, but have been let in by the liberal uh, media. You know have. Atlantic uh, uh, magazine columns and New York Times columns. Those people, those those people, because of I think some of their social obligations, just find Trump just disgusting and and have seem to have you know done a not on my soil um, move when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to Russia. Absolutely, I, I think one of the phrases that kind of springs to mind, you know, when we we talk about Russia and we talk about Trump and, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the kind of the lack of backbone the GOP is showing as far as being able to stand up is this idea of party over country. And, you know, it's the GOP would rather kind of successfully win elections on a kind of tainted country than they would kind of lose a kind of non-tainted election, if you see what I mean. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean... Yeah, and I think in the center, in the political center, you had a lot of people who do respect American uh, institutions, and I think, I think there is a sort of uh, to to bring up Edmund Burke, and uh, I think Buckley would have seen that protecting American institutions was the most important. I, I, you know, I, I mean, I know there's a. There's obviously a criticism on the left to be had that, that actually some American institutions need, or and even on the right, you know, need to be overturned. But I think in the center, where I think Buckley perhaps would have been on the, on these issues, that the protection of American institutions, especially against the foreign enemy, is, uh, would have been, uh, I think he would have been salient to to him. Absolutely. Um, well, that's us kind of round the full hour as it were for the yeah it's it's so interesting that we have you know this is the impressions of america obviously a shallow reference to oscar wilde but indeed it's it's almost like we've reached into the wildian canon and pulled out one of the silly tories and one of his (laughs) perfect absolutely um i don't know how how you kind of necessarily end a podcast on bill buckley um Mm. You could go go the Gore Vidal route, who after Buckley's death simply wrote WFB Rest in Hell. <laughs> WFB um, Rest in Hell. Th- that is that's one way to end it. It's funny because uh, speaking of people who seem to have very little um, uh, respect for for the uh, newly deceased, um, Buckley did write in uh, Ayn Rand's obituary uh, a, a liturgical pe- prayer. You know so. just like Vidal um, you know very much um, I think saucy to the end yeah I think think what you can say about Bill Buckley was he was very much full 100% Bill Buckley you know if the idea of living a good life has been your true self then I suppose he very much did live a good life you know he became a kingmaker with with reagan he became this this hero to the public and right 
whether or not he was a good person, whether or not the things he did were it for the greater good of the human race and for the American people. That's, I suppose, up to each individual person. I mean, I suppose all you can really see... I, I suppose that I suppose it might be up for a, a different podcast, maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I mean, the spectacle of Bill Buckley, I mean, that's the style, I think, created the spectacle, the spectacle of high drama, cut and thrust debate and um you know clever talk either certainly the spectacle of bill buckley is 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 immortal and i think certainly he has things to teach us uh both about you know you know about empiricism politics and about how to attract uh, a wider audience as well absolutely and i think as as um as sort of Vir- virginine uh, broadcasters ourselves here i think we, if, if nothing else we should have uh we should have respect for how bill is able to uh create an audience for himself that yeah he, he did all of this all of this you know goldwater reagan you know eventually uh, you know, um school vouchers and you know the um the welfare reform that came in the Clinton administration, all of these things flowed from him, but he did that with a wink and a smile, so, you know. Well, I mean, that's the very very least you can ask of a person, I suppose, with his level yeah. of intelligence, you know. I mean, like he, you said, he, like you said, you know, he lived a, a full, full life. <laughs> he, he absolutely did. <laughs> well, that will pretty much end it for wh- where we are on, on Bill Buckley. Like I said, we could probably talk for another hour on Bill. Sadly, uh, Sadly, that we'll have to maybe maybe wait for future podcasts at a future yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. But um, our our next podcast will be something slightly slightly different. I I guess we're going to delve a little bit more into uh, Toby and my, myself and kind yeah, of discuss... I I think I'll do some more a little bit more uh reading on Nixon and and, and you know his uh style, and then bring we'll just bring the 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 post and us the stuff we've done uh, on Bill Buckley and then try to think about how we're going to um, go on from here you know it's going to be about me and you absolutely our next podcast will kind of be kind of a, a better discussion on what what we think about certain things and how we've got kind of got to this point where we've created a podcast about 20th century American history and hopefully kind of give uh you guys at home a, a chance to kind of learn a little bit more about us and learn about why you know toby and i both have bill buckley tattoos it's probably, <laughs> it's probably worth exploring <laughs> yeah i i might i might get a, a bill buckley and the unmaking of a mayor tattoo potentially <laughs> after i read it because it's supposed to have uh, tom wolf style and on tom wolf you know bill and tom had some R.I.P. Tom Wolfe, first of all. Yeah. Another um, very interesting conservative, but Bill and Tom had some wonderful conversations on contemporary art and um, uh, contemporary architecture, and obviously they brought their their their, their beliefs to bear on on that as well. And uh, I think I'll be going around um, trying to sort of dictate and uh, criticize the art world but also using it as a social signifier as well so yeah well I, I in, think... in the in the buckley spirit 
<laughs> and and the Tom Wolf spirit. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think on on the idea of a Buckley spirit, we should probably say goodbye before we uh, go any further into that. I think uh, we can only imagine what that might be. Um, <laughs> uh, Toby, thank you very much for joining me again today, and uh, I will be speaking to you again in the near future. Thank you, Toby. Ah, uh, fabulous. Cheers. Thank you.